Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, good morning and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I'm standing in for our illustrious host, Pam Vardy, who is having a well-deserved birthday weekend away. So on the off chance, Pam, that you've woken up early on your day off, happy birthday. Who's going to sing? (laughs) Not me. (laughs) Today, as you might hear, today in the studio I am surrounded by greatness because we have with us Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and native plant gurus Gwen and Roger Elliott. Good morning to everybody. Good morning, morning, AB, and everybody out there who's hopefully listening to us this morning. That's right, yes. So so no one's going to sing to Pam? No, no, no. No, we don't want to upset her. (laughs) Or the rest of our listeners, actually, for that matter. We'll do it privately. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, So what's happening in everyone's world? Well, it's spring. Well, it's actually, it's rather late spring now by the feel of things. It's... A bit summery today. Yeah, dear, it's been a bit summery the last week or so. We've had some fairly warm days and then it's sort of dropped back again. Um, I'm quite convinced that most of my plants don't know what season it is. Almost sure of it. There's all sorts of weird things going on. Things are finishing really quickly because of the warmth. Yeah. Uh, and the dry as well. Yeah, and the ground has dried yeah. up already. I mean, I pulled out a whole pile of um, spent vegetables in the vegetable garden the other day and dug over one of the beds to put my tomatoes in, and it was hydrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I had to get a wetting agent onto it. It was just I couldn't get the water to go in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, once the ground is dry now, it's really dry. So yeah. um, And I don't know how many people... People got any rain yesterday? We got a, a few spots up. We got yesterday. ten mil. Yeah, we got ten in mil two, with in it. Two two batches. Did you have the storm? We ha- we had a storm, but Just not like what I think some people had. Yeah, your way. Yeah, yeah. And the we basin had it. I yeah, think, we had um, lots of lots of thunder and lightning yeah. and a bit of sprinkling in between. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we got the thunder and lightning a wee bit, but we were hoping it was going to be last night. I mean, it was Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> the thunder and lightning would have been very appropriate it for last been, night. Yeah, yes, it would have been with all those kids running around with mock blood and gore and weapons sticking out of them and goodness knows what else last night. I don't know what it was like in your area, but... Very, our, very quiet. It was, was it? Oh, our street gets manic, but it's partially our own fault because we sort of engaged... You encourage with, it. Yes, I imagine We engaged with yeah. the whole thing yeah. some years ago. We used to have a, a next-door neighbour who was an American and she had two little kids and mm. so we got into the yeah. swing of it for her kids and it's grown out of all proportion now. I have to buy my lollies wholesale. Um, and and we get dressed up. I was a goblin last night and our front veranda was covered in cobwebs and taxidermy and all sorts of bizarre stuff. And the kids love it. Uh, although some of the small ones went screaming off our veranda in tears. Well, that's what's meant to happen, surely. Yeah, well, apparently the parents thought it was screamingly funny. So, you know, and I said I was not paying for any sort of psychological damage we did so uh yeah, well, so we, well last year we had uh the neighbors kids come down and mm. bang on the door at about half past nine and we're thinking what on earth is going on you know not having you know don't have young kids yeah. around much i was thinking what on earth is going on oh trick or treat and although i was tempted to go for trick we managed to find some, <laughs> find some chocolate and uh, went for treat instead yeah and so this year i was prepared you know i had lollies and everything mm. and you know did a little bit of work on the front veranda hangs hung some um, skeletons and excited 
starting things like that, and of course nobody showed up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All those lollies sitting in the drawer being rather tempting now. Yeah, oh, damn. Yes, well, I think I over overbought this year a wee bit too. So I've got quite a lot of giant cobras and things that are just going to sit around the house looking at me until I eat them or something similar. But uh, yeah, look, it was a bit of fun last night. We enjoyed ourselves. We had Rackman and Offside of the Dead playing in the background quite loudly and. Um, and a few glasses of red wine were consumed and uh, and we waited till it got dark hoping that they'd stop so that we could then go and get something to eat because uh, they, they were arriving before I even got back from work. Okay. Uh, so poor Craig was trying to deal with <laughs> the decorating of the veranda and getting himself into costume and, and all that sort of stuff and there were kids coming in even then. So I think they'd bust them up or something. I'm not sure what happens at our place. But anyhow, yeah. it was good fun last night, so I enjoyed it. And, oh, yes, excellent. it might be a, a slightly bizarre um, ritual. Fit ritual and it yes. might be very Americanistic in some ways. Yeah, I but think it's fun. Look, anything yeah. that engages with children. And um, community. Yeah. So it brings, the, you know, sometimes you go, oh, you're my neighbours. Hello. Haven't yeah. seen you for a while. Yeah. Well, I, I actually even quite, uh, quite regularly get thank you notes from parents and things like that. And we've had little gifts arrive. And uh, this year, two days beforehand, one of the parents came down with a huge bag of lollies because she felt that we were being made use of. Um, so she helped supply my, my sweet and inappropriate things for children. Um, nice. And yeah, so it, it becomes a community thing. Yes. So if you engage with it, it can be quite good fun. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And I'm sure that they get some gardening as they walk up my driveway, you know, so <laughs> oh, I'm hoping yeah. I'm catching a few of them by osmosis. They're you know. being inculcated. Yeah, I think they are, Roger. I think that's the whole thing. You know, they walk up the garden and go, wow, isn't this something? I hope. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it, with these really sort of heady nights, just the, the wafts of scent. I mean, I mm. go out... Um, our back door every night before I go to bed just to, you know, relax and maybe see the moon if it's up. And there's, there's at the moment, there's the scent coming through, something mm. really sweet. I'm thinking maybe it's the citrus, I'm not sure, the lemons. Yeah, probably. Um, but, yeah, too. it's so lovely. Mm. Just, yeah. yeah. Yes, evening perfumes. Yeah, Fabulous. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, one thing you said just in passing there, you just mm. made a very quick reference to it needs or I used or I've got to use a wetting agent. Oh, yes. Now, there might be someone with one head on the pillow and uh, thinking... Probably quite a lot of people, actually, Gwen. <laughs> I, I've got soil like that. What does he mean? Yeah, yeah, well, I used one of the liquid ones. You can. There's a lot of different brands out there. I mean, I don't... I haven't done any... Uh, proper tests to know which ones are the more efficient or whatever. And I just had some of the wetter soil or one of those things. Yeah, wetter soil, soil wetter. Yeah, saturate. There's a whole range of different products. Well, saturate's usually a powder, Yeah, it is, you're right. Um, Eco-wet. Eco-wet. I think that's the one I actually had in the shed, actually. Um, So if anyone's thinking, what's he using? There's instructions on the the bottle. I always find the easiest way to deal with most of those products. And again, I don't know that this is very scientific, but I whack it in one of those things that go on the end of the hose. Oh, yeah. 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 And then that just sort of dilutes it as you're putting it on. I don't know how uh, how carefully it dilutes it, but it's the quick and simple way of putting down a product like that. Uh, so I always keep a couple of those containers that something's come in at some stage or another for putting down seaweed emulsion or for wetting agents or whatever because it's the simplest and easiest mm. way to deal with it. But I do find even putting a wetting agent down, and I noticed this the other day, you put it down, you see it all bubble up on the surface because it's sort of like a foamy sort of detergent detergenty yep. thing. Um 
and you go away and then you can come back and you scratch the surface and it's still not damp underneath. You've got to get some more moisture on oh. it again yeah. to sort of pull it down into the ground. It doesn't just work magically and suddenly. It takes a little while to get there. Now, this mo- uh, not this morning, yesterday morning, I went out to do a little bit of watering in the veggie garden where I planted these tomatoes and the moisture has got down now. Mm. But it, it took 24 hours or so for it to sort of start working in two or three waterings to, to pull the moisture down. Yeah. And now hopefully the tomatoes will be fine. Yeah, yeah. well, our, our garden beds, they were very lacklustre and so I did a lot of re I've been doing it and continue to do it because we've got quite a few beds. And um, the, the, it was very sandy, you know, all the compost mm. and everything that we'd put in there had, you know, well broken down and disappeared. So I've, I've put in uh, more... Uh, Barrow load of compost into each bed. Um, the rock minerals I've put in, uh, dynamic lifter I've chucked in, a lot of um, worm castings, and then watered that all in. You know, and again, I checked, did exactly what you did, Stephen, checked and it was only down a couple of centimetres. So I dug that over through the, you know, yeah, the, sort of the dry one mm. on top and then watered it again and put a lot of um, straw on top and then watered it in again. And that way, you know, and mm. it in a week or so that'll sort of have settled down and be ready for planting. Yeah, because it is that time. Yeah. You know? uh, I mean, I did have a client in the nursery yesterday from somewhere rather cold who said they'd had a frost the day before. Um, I'm just trying to remember where they were from now, but obviously Pleurisy Plains or somewhere. I'm not quite <laughs> sure where, but uh, somewhere pretty nasty. Um, but, they, you know, in our area, they always say you start planting your frost tender stuff after cup day, so we're close enough now. And so, yes, I've got my first tomatoes in. Uh, I've sown some basil seed. Uh, so over the next week or so, I'll start getting a lot more of those things in. One of the beds of broad beans is just about done, so yep. I'll pull that out and get ready for some sweet corn to go in. All that sort of stuff needs to be sort of considered now yeah Um, yeah. because you do have to think ahead if you want to eat out of your vegetable garden oh that's right and i'm trying to be really good and not i get overly excited when i'm putting in seeds and you know so punnets and punnets of them and trays and trays of them and then you know you've got 400 zucchini plants ready to go oh no yeah why did i do yeah what did i do that for yeah Yeah. trying to pull myself back and have a bed ready for for example tomatoes i've got a one row of tomato plants already in you know they're each about a foot high and in flower and i've left the rest of the bed empty and when the next lot of seedlings come through then i'll put another row in i think i've been really (laughs) organized like that so that we have that continuous supply do you find and i find this nearly every year that you haven't quite finished one crop when you want to try oh, and get the bed ready for the next one. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, w- I really don't want to pull out the broad beans because there's still some beans on them, yeah. but that's just the bed I'd like to get ready for my sweet corn. Yeah. Um, and, and you think, oh, look, there's probably only one more feed of broad beans in there. Well, I, well, I just pull them out and you think, no, I can't do it. And, oh, it's, it's and a dreadful it's a quadrant. And it's for the next one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You're sort of running behind and, yep. you know, and, and you're looking at the garlic thinking, is that going to collapse yet so that I can pull it out and dry it and, you know, and then that bed's released. And, I mean, I've got a biggish veggie garden, yet I always seem to not have room to do the things I want to do in some unneeded bed. Yes. Yeah, well, we're on the opposite end of the scale because we're quite restricted now. And uh, our snow peas, we've had one crop, multiple just we fed how will we eat our snow peas tonight and and then they just went off a little bit but now they're flowering again the garlic beside it is nearly ready yeah and uh, we've got stuff that we want to put in we've stuck in some some beans we just plonked in in front of the sweet peas we'll see how they go but yeah it's 
one of those things, just trying to plan it, and it seems that AB, she's very good, isn't she? I, well, I especially try if she's to be. I do. <laughs> and because I've got a glass house as well, so I was yeah, able to, yeah. you know, grow some. Yeah, well, we put early. in our tomatoes probably a month ago. We yeah. were given a tomato by a friend, and he said, see if you can, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get something by Christmas, and oh. he's got some for himself, and every time I see him, he tells me how big his young tomato <laughs> fruit are. <laughs> I said, I think you kept the best plan for yourself, Bob, and yeah. he's having a competition with us now as to who gets the first tomato. I, I would I would fall back on, oh, we, we're better with native plants, if I were you. <laughs> so is he, actually. So oh, damn. Mainly, so it doesn't work. He's mainly native, but uh, it's also a matter of, uh, as Roger said, we're in a small garden, how much sun you get in yeah. your veggie bed, yeah. and he's on an acre or two, and um, so he's certainly got a spot to have more sun than we have in our <laughs> little backyard. Uh, yes, I think look, cheating. it's so much fun, and... Um, and it's it's you know such good eating and yeah. for children if you're trying to improve their diet, uh, there's no better way than growing strawberries, tomatoes, whatever, mm. uh, and they're keen to eat the fresh fruit and veggies. Where sometimes, um, particularly, they're found in studies with children with intellectual disabilities. Um, it's very hard to get them to eat what's good for them in mm. terms of fruit and veggies, mm. except if they've grown them themselves mm. and then they're so keen to eat their carrot or, mm. or whatever mm. that it's really great. So, no, veggie gardening is mm. great. I, I know carrots are supposed to be easy to grow, but I really can't grow carrots. And I've decided mm. we eat so many carrots, there's some things which you can buy organic really easily and relatively, and relatively cheaply, cheaply. So yeah. I just don't bother with, but I you know bother with the other things like lots of nice herbs herbs and watercress and, you know, all, all the other things that I find easier to grow. But um. Well, there is always something that will completely bamboozle you. No matter how good a horticulturalist you are, there are certain plants that just won't grow for you. Carrots. And I've, Yeah, well, carrots in your case, um, Brussels sprouts in mine. I still have no. never cracked a decent crop of Brussels no, sprouts. Ours were pathetic this year. Yeah, well, I, I didn't even put any in this season. I, I, I decided I wasn't going to bother <laughs> as much as I like Brussels sprouts. Um, uh, they take up a lot of room and they take quite a long time. Mm. Um, and even in a biggish vegetable garden, if, if I'm not sure I'm going to get a crop, is it worth the effort? You know, so you've got to start wondering about these things. I mean, the broccoli does well for me, so I can get sort of green brassicas that way. Mm. Um, and, you know, some vegetables are more hard work. And so, you know, you've got to have the time to spend on them and, and what have you. I'm sure people go out there and pat their cauliflowers and things like that. I don't know why mine never are as good as other people's. but um, We had three beautiful cauliflowers. <laughs> Did you? Well done. But, but oh, they, three plants. The whole problem is that. They nearly all ripened or came to be at the uh, same, yeah, same that's time. That's right. So how much sort of cauliflower au gratin can you make yeah, in, yeah. in one week? You know? yeah. yeah, so, yes, it's always an issue with veggie gardening. Yes. But there you go. Yes, There's yes. another aspect I think is worth mentioning and that some things we or I never buy almost from the, the shop because they're so much better if you can walk out the back, pick them and eat them. Broad beans, I think, is one of those oh, because we eat the yeah. shells as well. You There's know, nothing you nicer them, than broad uh, beans. And silver beet is mm. another thing. I mean, to, by the time you get your silver beet home, it's a little a bit, bit tired yeah. compared yeah. to the one you can walk out the mm. back door and pick a couple of leaves. Mm. But that, that seems to me to be the same with anything green, really. I mean, I've never tasted an artichoke, a globe artichoke, like the ones I can pick out of my own garden and cook 
cookbooks yeah. straight away. Yeah. Um, they're always sort of a bit fibery and tough and stuff, the ones you buy at the shops, I think. Yeah. Um, because we ate our first two two nights ago. Oh, what do you do with them? I'm always a little bit perplexed. Oh, they're so I, easy. I have yeah. tried them, but are you supposed to take out that little no, brushy no, bit in the middle? Don't or? bother with all right. that stuff. Pick them when they're oh, that big, <laughs> which is really good on radio. Tennis ball size? Yeah, tennis ballish size yep. uh, with about two inches of stem. Yep. And make sure you He's shake old. out the earwigs. centimetres. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, make sure you shake out any earwigs, although once you cook them, the earwigs tend to float to the top. Yep. Um, and just put them in unsalted water and bubble them away for about 40 minutes. That's all you have to do. Then you take them out, drain them, yep. get all the water out, and then if you're feeling really... Um, Luxurious. You, you, you put butter all over them. Yeah. Otherwise, you just put good virgin olive, olive oil, oil over yeah. them. You just drizzle it over the whole head, some salt, some pepper, and then you just start peeling one bracket at a time and scraping them against the back of your teeth. And you get down to the centre. If there's a, if the choke is still in there, you just scrape it off with a teaspoon, and then you get down to the the plate underneath it, which is the most gorgeous piece of vegetable known to man as far as I'm concerned and by that time you've got butter dribbling down your arms and off your elbows and um, uh, it's the most sensual meal you can have is a, is a, Jeruz- is a globe artichoke um, and you don't have to do a lot of preparation you don't have to cut the ends off the, okay, the bracks I mean, I've obviously been doing it wrong you just yeah. put get a big bowl that you can Making pour all your scraps in yeah, and look, I, the first time I had them, they were cooked exactly the way I'm describing. They weren't stuffed. They weren't. There wasn't all sorts of stuff done to them, and it was just a, uh, some butter and salt and pepper, and that's all it took. I love them. I, 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 yeah, I had, a, I had a great experience. The first time I ever had a globe artichoke was in um, San Francisco. And we Interesting was, place to go to have a globe artichoke. Oh, at, we were at a very high-class house. Uh, it was a very yeah. high-class house, and... I'd been speaking there, and they were, they were looking after us, and uh, and I'd never had one before, and I didn't have a clue. No, I've had you eat one. So, so you I, wait and you watch, and wait and watch, and then I ended up leaving some of it. No, you left the, the centre bit. Might have been the you heart, uh, you yeah. ate all the leaves, like yeah, Stephen yeah. suggests. We had a special dip. Oh, you yeah. dipped each yeah. one in a dip, and then put it in your mouth and pulled off the soft. And bar. then, lo and behold. The bloke says, oh, we'll keep that for, for dinner tomorrow, he says. The one Roger had left, left the stem so. part, you know, which was the heart, and they put it in the fridge. Well, the first time I ever had them was actually at Christopher Lloyd's house. Okay. And yeah. he used to do it on purpose because he'd love to see whether people could deal with the damn thing if they'd never had one before. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he served, uh, served them up in, in his um, dining room, and I fell in love with them immediately. I mean, yeah. they are fiddly and fussy to eat, um, but the flavour is absolutely fabulous. And having that interaction with food is good, isn't it? Well, I think you know, so. Yeah, you know, you can actually instant. use your hands, and yeah. it's yes. perfectly legit. You whereas, don't use a knife and fork. No, well, I don't know how you'd use a knife no. and fork with an artichoke. I have to say, but um, yeah, they're a wonderful vegetable, and I think they're a great-looking plant in the garden. Mm. Uh, the only drawback I think that there is with them is the fact that once you cut the head off. The looks of the plant tend yeah. to not be as good as they were. So you always have this, oh, it's looking so nice. Will I? And But uh, cutting the head off always works for me at the end because it's the bit I want. How uh, many how many flowers do you end up getting? On most of my clumps, I will get uh, probably about half a dozen buds off a clump. Yeah, you see, that, to me that's not a lot of... Eating yes. oh, for no. such an enormous plant. True, you know, it's like onions but it's and a luxury it's, thing. It's one thing, one thing that you get to eat for one thing that you plant. Whereas tomatoes, you get a whole bunch of things. Yeah, that, you oh, know, yeah. And yeah. Look, I can, I can get that, but I also think that 
off, to offset that, you can't eat them any better than you can fresh from your own garden. Yeah. They're a seriously ornamental-looking plant, so they don't actually necessarily have to be in the veggie garden. Uh, you know, you true, could plant true. your, your yeah. artichokes into your perennial border. There's no reason why you couldn't. I mean, a lot of people plant their sort of slightly wilder relative, the cardoon, as, a, as an mm. ornamental in in, um, uh, in their borders. So why not, in fact, plant um, uh, an artichoke? And the thing I like about the artichokes is that their foliage and their good looks are good right up until sort of mid to late spring, whereas a lot of other things are starting to just get underway. So they actually give you interesting foliage in your borders and things earlier in the season. So as long as you've got a bit of rich soil somewhere in, in a perennial border, you don't actually have to put them in the veggie patch. Mm. I have to say mine are uh, in the vegetable patch because they're easy to manage there. Um, but, um, you know, there's quite a few vegetables that I often sort of consider... Intersperse. Intersperse somewhere yeah, else yeah. so that that relieves some space for, for the more productive, perhaps, vegetables. Um, and, of course... There's nothing like growing your own luxury items, mm. and that's mm. the way I look at them. They're, yeah. a, they're a luxury yeah. item in the garden. It's like asparagus and a lot of these things. There's nothing like picking fresh ones out of your own garden, yeah. uh, and they are a, a serious luxury yeah. to have them. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to devote a bit of room to something like artichokes. Yeah, very um, good. And, yeah, they're, they're great fun, and they are so easy to cook. It's eating them that is the complicated bit. Yes, yes. But once you've seen somebody do it, it's straightforward. It's, I'll, I'll yeah. have to give it a go next season. Yeah, oh, yeah great Give plans. it a go. I, I guess you're just used to um, wanting to make them the same way that you see them in delicatessens. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, just... And that's like another vegetable. That's like the difference between fresh asparagus and canned asparagus. Ooh, yeah. They don't taste anything alike, uh, and it's like having completely different vegetables. Or instant coffee as opposed to um, ground coffee. Yes. You know, it's like two different drinks. Uh, there's no sort of connection for me. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't have nothing uh, against, you know, jars of artichokes that you buy in the delicatessens for certain things. But, yeah, they're I nothing think, like I think they're nice. I like them. Yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Nice on an antipasto or mm. yeah. the, the mm. platter. Mm. All right. Well, let's get on to oh, yes, some we better community have some. announcements. Okay. Uh, so, open today, tomorrow and Tuesday is the Inspired Gardens of Gippsland. They're open from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, these gardens are in Niram South, Jindavik and Jambana. Today, there's also an extra three gardens open in Jambana. Entry for five of the gardens is $7.50 and for the other gardens, it's $10 each. For further information and to receive a map and an explanation of each garden, you can email Leslie, so that's L-E-S-L-E-Y-J, Double two double one at gmail dot com. I'll I'll spell that again. L e s l e y j double two double one at gmail dot com. Also on today, the Australian Pelagonium and Geranium Society annual spring show. That's at Belfield Community Centre, Banksia Street in Ivanhoe. And also on today. Villa Alba Open Day. That is that's the historic house and the RJ Hamer Heritage Garden. And the house actually is featured in the ABC drama The Beautiful Lie. I don't know if any of any of you have caught that drama, which is uh, pretty good. And yeah, so the house is a lot of sex in that. going on in that. A, there is, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so that's open today from one till four. Admission is ten dollars. Concession is $8, children are free, and afternoon tea is available with a $3 donation. 
On to you, Gwen. Over to me. Um, the Pelagonium and Geranium Society show. It starts at uh, 9.30 today, oh, goes through thanks. to 4pm and costs $5. I have got a phone number for that if anyone wants further information, but you better ring Lorna fairly early or she'll be heading off down there, I'm sure. 94384080. Now, also today, the Victorian Iris Society has its show where else? The Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley. I think Where? they just roll over shows down there, don't they? I was going to Complete. Say, One goes out, the other <laughs> comes in. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, it's a great venue for shows oh, and it is, it is so well used. Yeah. Okay, today it's Iris people down there. It's good for uh, public transport too if people yeah. catch trains. Oh, that's right, because there's a railway station yeah. right there. Opposite. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Today it's 11am to 4pm, so you can keep listening to the show um, right through to when we finish at 9.15, unless you're travelling there from Macedon, of course. Yes. Um, I won't give you a phone number for that uh, because I haven't got one. I've got an email, but look, just head out to the Mount Waverley Community Centre today if you're interested in Iris. Now, next Saturday, November the 7th, in the Coburg area, um, there is a garden festival. It's called the Pepper Tree Place Garden Festival, 512 Sydney Road, Coburg, 10am to 4pm. Now, this is supporting the Kildonan uh, homes and it's being sponsored by Yarra Valley Water. I was looking, I thought, Yarra Valley, Coburg, where are we? But good on Yarra Valley Water. But there's a plant nursery, there's organic tasty food and handmade treats, uh, knitting, crochet and stitching, uh, perhaps this is like yarn bombing or something, you know, revealing the beauty of our garden surrounds. There's workshops and talks throughout the day. Now, let me see. I've got um, a phone number for, I think, Kildonan, uh, which is a uniting church care organisation. Uh, <clears throat> that's the only number I've got for further information. It is 0431 Seven seven three, and that is next Saturday, ten to four pm. And it doesn't say how much it is to get in. Maybe it's a free one. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of things, no doubt, I that you I can support yeah. Kildonan yeah. once you get in there. Just, just Community up. information, market stalls. I'm sure there's, you know, all sorts of food and everything. So uh, that's the way you would support it, rather, I think, than paying any price because I've got a full A page. Sheet here, plenty of room to put an entry fee if there was one. Mm. I've got a couple of advance notices here. I was, yeah, a li- little bit in advance anyway. On Tuesday, November the 17th, the Friends of Burnley Gardens are holding a dinner at the gardens and um, they there's a talk. It's going to cost you $30. That's for the meal and the talk. If you're a mm. member of the Burnley Friends, $45 if you're not. If you just want to go to the talk, it's just $10 members and $20 non-members. But uh, the speaker is Lindsay Poor, and Lindsay's been a long-term guide at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, and uh, she's a volunteer at the Herbarium too, and uh, president of the South Melbourne Garden Club. She's been involved with various gardening groups for a long time, um, and she's really passionate about seeing garden plants in the wild so she's going to be talking about wildflowers of the deserts of utah and arizona goodness and that that'll be pretty spectacular you know just all those plants that grow there all these wonderful cacti and uh, not just cacti but lots of other things so that's tuesday 17th of november 
going to be held at Burnley College, 500 Yarra Boulevard, Richmond. And bookings are essential, so you can ring 9035-6861 or email a.smith at unimelb.edu.au. The telephone number again is 9035-6861. So that's Lindsay Poor talking about wildflowers of the deserts of Utah and Arizona. And on Sunday the 22nd of November, there's a special sale display, uh, sorry, sale day and mini display. This is by the Yarravella. Yarra Valley Bonsai Society and it's being held in the Japara Living and Learning Centre which is in Durham Road, Kilsyth 22nd of November and the doors open at 10am and it only goes to 1pm so you've got to be right on time there Uh, the cost is um, $2 to to get in and uh, so there's a great selection of bonsai and bonsai related items Trees, starters, nursery stock, there's books, stands, tools, um, and a whole range of other things. So if you'd like further information on that, you they haven't got a phone number, but we can give you a email address. So if you've got your pens there, it's R-J-E-R-L-I-T-S-C-H-K-A at iprimus.com.au so that's Sunday the 22nd of November for a special sale day and mini display of bonsai well it would be a mini display wouldn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, sorry boing boing <laughs> although they do have these big ones well they do they? yes they, they can Roger relatively yes. speaking Rel- yes, yes oh they're huge yeah. mm. actually a person we know they've got a well established garden just uh, north of Berwick there somewhere and she told me the other day, her husband's digging up, he's got into these huge bonsai things, he's putting in a special pavilion. Oh, goodness. And he's Must digging up he's digging up big, well-advanced plants in the garden and then he's starting scraping bark and all this stuff. Oh, goodness know, gracious me. And then they probably bleach the bark, you yeah. know, the inside of the wood. And well, I suppose it keeps him entertained. Very technical. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, goodness now, gracious. I think you've got the last Yeah, I've got one here, here and this one's also a Burnley Gardens one, so a lot of the information that um, Roger gave you, read the talk that's coming up, as in who to ring and who to email and all that stuff is the same. But this is, uh, again, from the Friends of Burnley Gardens and they're running a short course on fit fruit trees in vertical spaces so it's a summer pruning and a spalier workshop being led by chris england of merrywood plants um and it is on saturday the 5th of december so it's quite well in advance but it's one of those things you will need to get organized for and to book for it's obviously at burnley college uh that it's from 10 a.m to 11 uh, sorry 10 a.m to 1 p.m the cost for members is $55, for non-members $75. Bookings are obviously essential, so again, you can ring 9035-6861 or email a.smith at unimelb.edu.au um, and that you will need to get in touch with them because you will have to pay in advance. Uh, and it's BYO Cleaned and Sharp Secretaries. So if you want to know how to deal with fruit trees in the summer and, grow, and look after your espaliers, that would be a perfect opportunity. 
Excellent. Well, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan and Gwen and Roger Elliott. It's time to open our line for callers, so if you've got a question or fancy a quick chat about something that's going on in your garden, we'd love to hear from you. The number to speak to us on air is 94190155 and the outside line, Anne is on the outside line on 94198377. So those numbers again to speak to us on air, 94190155 and to speak to Anne on the outside line, 94198377. Now, I knew that when uh, I saw that Gwen and Roger and Stephen were coming in that we'd be surrounded by a plethora of plants, and I certainly haven't been disappointed. A.B. likes plethora too. Yeah, I like plethora. It's a great word, plethora. It is a a good word, and it's very apt It's my penultimate word, really. (laughs) (laughs) Take that as you want. Yeah, Uh, so where shall we start? Oh, I don't know. Well, we could start on one of mine at the far end. Why Why don't we do that? Now, I brought along... A shrub from a genus that I don't normally have a huge amount of interest mm. in, um, and it's a Ptosporum. Yes. Um, we all know that one of our native Ptosporums has gone feral over half the blasted country. We also know that there's one Ptosporum commonly known as James Sterling, which is uh, might not have gone weedy, but it looks weedy most of the time uh, and seems to be used in every suburban setting known to man. That's New uh, Zealand, isn't it? Yeah, that's a New Zealander. Um but this particular one is Ptosporum tibera, which is a Japanese Ptosporum, and it hasn't proven to have any downsides as far as I can figure. Uh, it doesn't seem to sell seed around. Um, it makes a nice, compact, neat shrub to about two and a half to three metres. Uh, I saw it used a lot in the Mediterranean, the south of France, for screening and hedging. Uh, it seems to be very drought tolerant. Uh, it's comparatively shade tolerant. Um, it flowers at this time of the year with little white flowers. It's not actually dissimilar to the Ptosporum undulatum flowers. They sort of come out creamy white and they go a slightly lemony colour as they age. It has a nice perfume. It does. Um, so its foliage is lovely and glossy. I think you've cleaned every leaf to bring no, it in. No, I Very didn't. This, this one just came straight out of stock in the nursery. But uh, you're right, it looks glossy and yeah. shiny. It's, uh, and I love foliage like that because it glitters in the garden. I think, you know, leaves like that look healthy. Um, and so I think Ptosporum tibera is one of those plants that is unfairly ignored by the nursery trade, I think. It's not overly difficult to propagate. Uh, it doesn't take too long to get a saleable plant. It flowers in an eight-inch pot, so there's no reason why even the, the garden centres and, and big stores shouldn't stock it, in a sense, because, you know, when they sell things that are in flower, this would be a perfect plant to sell. Um, and yet you don't see it grown much, so it does leave it open for me to grow and sell because you can't buy it that easily elsewhere. Um, so I think it's a really good shrub, and and, um, uh, yeah, I'm hoping people will start to engage with it and perhaps ask for it and maybe encourage the nursery industry to grow it a bit more. You can make it into all shapes. I've seen it all different shapes. Yeah. It's amazing. Some some are mind-boggling, actually, but it's a, yeah, yeah. a really right, tough plant. It's interesting. Plant. I wouldn't actually think that it would be good as sort of a topiary because, yeah. you know, quite wide, quite long internodes. Yeah, it and trims very well. So you could do nearly anything you want with it, as Roger said, and even just, though, as a screening shrub just to sort of yeah. hide things a wee bit. Um, If you don't prune it, it's never so dense that it's just a blob. There does seem to be the sense of sort of 
shape and form to it, which I actually find quite appealing. So if you just let it go, um, it will have a little bit of airy gap through it, but it'll be quite solid enough not to properly see through. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just think it's a good plant. And you, you can also get variegated leaf forms. Uh, there is a miniature form lurking around that's actually called Wheeler's Dwarf, but for some reason or another is getting around with the name of Little Miss Muffet, which drives me insane because it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the plant. It's a Grevillea with the same name. Uh, <sighs> yeah, and in fact, if I remember <laughs> rightly, the label comes with Spider and, and Muffet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I ever buy it from a nurseryman that has those labels, I get rid of the labels and put Wheeler's Dwarf on it because that's actually what it is. Uh, but the Dwarf one is actually quite nice. It only gets to mm. a little less than a metre, but a little broad. Water, yeah. It makes this really tight. I can see why they called it Little Miss Muffet because it does make this really nice tight mound of mm. foliage. Yeah. Uh, the dwarf doesn't flower quite as prolifically as the as the big growing one, but it will still flower. Uh, so I think that yeah, Potosporum tuberia is a very worthy plant. So it's, it's a nice looking plant. All right. Well, let's go to our first caller, Alison from Bomaris. Good morning, Alison. Hello there. Uh, How can I, I help you? I have um, two questions for probably for. Uh, Gwen and Roger, one about kangaroo poise, recommendations for very hardy of the tall or medium tall varieties, Uh preferably gold coloured because I already have big red, so something to complement that. And the other question is, what's the best time to prune an old and woody calistamine? Okay, well perhaps we could start with the calistamine. Even now is a good time. Oh, good. Uh, because you know they start should be starting to put on growth after if they, if if they're flowered. Is it flowered okay for you? Oh, not much flower because okay. it really needs rejuvenating. Okay. Well, look, you can be you can prune as hard as you like. Mm-hmm. So if it's mm-hmm. got you, it, has it got many stems coming up or yes. just the one stem? Yes, they're various branches. Okay. Look, I, I'd even take off a third of the stems and and take them off down fairly low. Yeah. And then shorten your other growth, and uh, also you could at, after pruning. Now's a good time to give it a bit of a feed too, which would yeah. maybe just help it. Uh, uh, some of the long-term, slow-release fertilizers would yeah. be fine. Um, but now, now's a good time to do it. Good, All thank right. you. And and don't be scared. You can prune as hard as you like. <laughs> yeah. They're Can't. pretty tough, aren't they? They don't <laughs> mind. No, they don't mind. <laughs> Roger uh, has been known to chainsaw almost to the base of calistamines. Well, they but, come back. Yeah, yeah, I know they do. But, um, you know, I'm not nearly as drastic as you, <laughs> I must admit. But you, you can prune them, you know, yeah. quite vigorously because they do respond well to pruning. So it's up to you. Just look at the plant and see where do I want the branches to shoot from? Do I need to eliminate any particular branches totally to reduce its width or whatever? Mm. And, uh, you know, it'll be very forgiving of what you do. I'll let you know. It's right. about 10 to 12 feet high, yeah, that, that is quite old. Yeah, yeah, look, that should be fine. Good. But, uh, yeah, take out about of a third of the main branches. Yeah. Okay. Gwen's going to tell you about the kangaroo paws. Right. Oh, no, look, you, you said the magic word there in terms of tall stems because... All of the kangaroo paws that have got tall flower stems are much easier yes. to grow, more successful in our gardens here yes. in Melbourne area or Victoria uh, than the ones with very short stems. Yes. If you go to a nursery and you see kangaroo paws with stems about 30 centimetres tall, they're 
If you read the very fine print on some of the labels, it does say they were developed for pot culture, yes. sort of like yes. a, um, a bunch of flowers, you know, that last for months and months in the house perhaps. Mm. But any of the tall, um, tall growing ones have... One of the natural species, Anigazanthus flavidus, yes. the tall kangaroo paw, as yes. one of the parents, and that's the one that's got lots of natural vigour. Um, it grows in a range of conditions, even tolerating waterlogging in its natural habitat in mm. WA. It's, it's one of the few soil. I've actually managed to grow fairly well up at yeah. Macedon, even, yeah. uh, was Flavida. That did well in my garden for years until it got swamped by something. Yeah. Yeah. Naturally, it's mostly got green flowers, and people say, look, I want some others. So the breeding was done to introduce some of the other colours in mm. with Flavida. So you've got, as you said, big red um, there is orange. There's also a range that Angus Stewart has brought right. out, a, you know, landscape landscape range, yep. and they're called landscape lime and landscape lilac, and I've then he's got yellows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and they're really hardy, you know, landscape clay soil. yellow. That's right. Landscape yeah. Landscape orange. Put a tick on them. Yeah. yeah. And in bush the older gold. ones, bush gold. Yeah. It yeah. stems to yeah. a metre. Yeah. And yellow that, gem. Yellow yeah. gem's another good one. I, right, I think yellow good. gem is one of the best, actually. Ah, one ah, of, one of the best yellows. Double it's, tick there. Yeah, double tick. <laughs> it, it, it's just not all um, yellow because it does have a bit of reddish tonings in the stem and things mm-hmm. like that. So, And you know, we've, we've planted just some, some at home quite recently and, uh, and they're coming up. And the birds love them. You'll have... Yeah, Lots of little little honey eaters oh, and bigger joking. honey eaters. Yeah, yeah, you doing have the water birds bending them onto the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing but noisy miners. All oh, right. Oh, no, anyway, you'll get some others. Uh, now, are those available at Karanga? Yes, certainly. Or, you know, a lot of your other nurseries too, but Karanga yes. at Mount Evelyn certainly has a good range. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Alison. Bye. Bye. And let's go straight to Sharon in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, good morning. Uh, look, I wondered, um, next winter I wanted to plant, it's a bit advanced, but I wanted to plant some um, grevilleas. Yes. I've got a northern wall. Uh-huh. Um, and I particularly would like winter flowering. Okay. And 1.2 sort of high, although it's not. Okay. Yeah, can you and, and sandy soil, of course. Yeah, fine, fine. Yeah. Look, yeah, we could just about tell you about any grevillea <laughs> flowering at that time. But you know, if you're wanting long flowering, some of, some of the hybrids, what they call the grevillea banksii, grevillea bipinnata hybrids, they're they're pretty good value. And uh, one called Superb will get bigger, but you can keep it to one point two, one point five easily, and they respond really well to that. That sort of uh, pruning. Um, one that is really good, I think, is peaches and cream. Um, okay. I, I, when, I must admit, when that first came out, I thought, is that going to grow down here? But it, it thrives. Yeah. Superb so, is an orangey red, yeah. and peaches and cream is well-named. Cream and apricot to peachy yeah. colour. Yeah. You know, so, but, uh, you know, if you're wanting really bright reds... Um, there is one sold under a few different names, Grevillea Scarlet Sprite, quite oh. prickly, low, very dense. Sometimes it's sold as Priors Hybrid, but oh. that, that's, that's a good, good, reliable plant. Oh, that sounds good. I've written these all down. Have you? <laughs> good. I've got to not lose it. Yes, don't lose your piece of paper. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, look, a, a lot of the Grevilleas, that, that's their, their main flowering time. 
Yes, so, excellent. That's just what I want. Yeah, all right. I've yeah. noticed my garden, the only thing I have in winter flowering is the rosemary. Yeah, okay. Hmm. I know, I was just talking about this subject to somebody yesterday. I was writing a book and, uh, you know... As you do. Yeah. <laughs> and she was wanting information and we said, you know, the, the thing is if people go... And I think you mentioned it last time you were on or even last week maybe. People go to the nurseries now. Yeah. And if they're... They got get a, excited. Got, got mm. a new garden and, and fair enough, they get excited too. Mm. When they see all the stuff, often grab it, then they find, oh, autumn, winter. Yeah, what happened to those other yeah, seasons? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. I really do advise people to get out to their nurseries regularly, even if it's not to buy things, but no. just to see what is there and what is flowering at the time. Yep. Um, if you're really keen to get a garden that's functioning all year round, then you really should visit your nursery at least once a month mm. uh, and just see what's flowering, what's going over, um, and get your head around the whole year. Because I mean, we can be out in our gardens the whole year in in Australia, um, and so we should have things to enjoy the whole year. Just yep. seems logical. To me, yep. yes, that's something I've just learned. <laughs> yeah, and, Sharon, and you could also wander around your neighbourhood, and, and you know, there might be some grevilleas and flower around there that take your fancy that obviously grow well in your conditions. Yes, there are a few. They're cutting down things as hard as they can go around here. Okay, yeah. oh dear. Well, you change that. Mm. Yeah, it's all right. Well, yeah. thank you. Bye. Thanks, Sharon. Just continuing the praise of that Grevillea Superb, we said it's got an orangey-red flower, and the flower is about, in Stephen's terms, four or five inches long. Isn't that it's easier a, to, to, to visualise, though, <laughs> than so many centimetres? Uh, it's, it's a nice spray. Long as people don't think the flower... The, the, the flower, the flower head, cluster. I'm yes, sorry, that, that, yes. Right. But we had a lady, a friend, um, came around for afternoon tea a few weeks ago, Jean, and she said she's... Been, she's a member of a garden club and she's been cutting Grevillea Superb. She, she's just very precise from her front garden mm. for the last 20 years and has taken it to every monthly meeting of the garden club Goodness that she's gracious. attended. It's just in flower the whole time. Yeah. This is the beauty of it and it really does. In It will tolerate sandy soils. It will also tolerate fairly heavy clay. Probably as not as as long as it's not waterlogged. I wouldn't give it waterlogging. It it, it does like a bit of moisture if it gets it. It really responds to it. Well, it has um, to to support that flower, doesn't it? But it can can grow up to maybe two to three metres unless you prune it back. And, And it's good to prune it back. You get rid of some of the old stems and it just... It rejuvenates the plant. Sometimes well it can named. be tricky, though, can't it? Because if a plant's flowering all oh, year, yeah, yeah, you yeah. you know you're so appreciative of having those flowers <laughs> that you really don't want to chop it. Well, back. that's you, when you pick yeah. them and take yeah. them to the garden. Well, yeah. You do maybe. that, and you also pick your timing. If you've got something that flowers nearly all year round, pick a time when the rest of the garden's looking at its best uh-huh. to do your so pruning. You do, so you don't miss it as much. You don't. Yeah, yeah. Look, if you cut it back in the middle of winter when everything else is looking dreary, well, then you, you're actually taking away something that could be really important. So it's not a matter of pruning it. A certain time of the year, it's a matter of picking the time of the year when the rest of your garden is looking good, and yeah. then you cut that grevillea back to give it a bit of a chance to come back again. Yes, and that's the way I would deal with a plant like that. Yes, yes. Let's go to Marjorie and Hawthorne. Good morning, Marjorie. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, you were talking about Petosphora earlier, and mm. I thought I'd ring and ask whether anybody there knew the name of a Petosphora that I saw first uh, many years ago, and more recently uh, again. One was in Shakespeare Grove in Hawthorne, and the other was deep uh, in the Stesleckis in an abandoned the garden of an abandoned house. And it's a petostrum which um, has burgundy flowers. Uh, they're deep red to burgundy. Mm. Um, 
And instead of having a rather wide, uh, sort of round uh, growth, um, it is slightly uh, uh, erect and uh, uh, a bit more of a column. Yeah. Sounds like uh, one of the forms of Ptosporum tenuifolium, I would think, which is one of the New Zealand Ptosporums. Ah, is it? Uh, And James Sterling, in fact, is one of its hybrids or, or selected forms, but they all get those little dark burgundy flowers, the tenuifolium forms, and there's variegated ones, there's burgundy leafed ones. Uh, the straight form itself has a slightly silvery-ish leaf, but it's certainly much bigger than the foliage of um, uh, of James Sterling, which has quite tiny leaves. Yes, yes, these leaves are... Uh, slightly rounded, are they, Stephen? Yes, on the, yes. The, yes. The slightly rounded, yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is a natural, uh, not a... Not a um, Developed, uh, you yeah, know, it could well be the, the wild species. Or, yeah, pardon? it could well be the wild species of tenuifolium. Yes, why well, I ask that is the first one that I saw in Shakespeare Grove was in the garden of what I understand was the first German, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Not embassy in a, in in Victoria. Oh yes, the consulate. Consul. Mm. Consul. Yes, thank you for that word. <laughs> consulate there, and I assume that it was pretty old. The um, you know the house was mm. pretty old, and I, the garden was too. And I assume that that uh, had been planted a long while ago before it was likely to have been. Uh, yeah, and look, I wouldn't even know where to start to look if I wanted to buy a straight. Ptosporum tenuifolium. Yes, well, that's, that's why I've never seen it anywhere. Mm. And, and in fact, both trees were beautiful, just yeah. beautiful. Mm. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for that. Thanks, that, thanks, Martin. That's helpful. Bye-bye. At least it's answered my. It's just been at the back of my mind for years what yeah. that one was in 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 Hawthorne. <laughs> right, thank Good you. on you. Thank you. Okay, bye. I didn't realise Stephen that um, any of the Ptosporums had. Uh, burgundy flowers. Yeah, they're, but they're small and they're not terribly conspicuous. They do have a nice perfume, um, but um, yeah, the, the, the colour in fact is not particularly overt, so you don't notice it particularly. Mm. But the genus Ptosporum is huge. I mean, oh, there's yeah. Ptosporums that come from practically all around the world um, and, you know, we have quite a lot here in Australia. New Zealand has a, a, a goodly selection, but you can get Ptosporums from New Caledonia, you can get Ptosporums from Japan, you can get them from lots of different parts of the world. Uh, and they're very various-looking plants, um, many of which you wouldn't pick for being a Ptosporum unless you actually mm. were in the know or you, you knew all of the botanical characteristics of the plant that you could pin it down. Yeah, that yeah, and right. I guess that makes sense. I mean, any of the genuses have, you know, or genera, I should say, have, uh, you know, s- such a range mm. of, you know, Well, it's, it's the classical thing. We tend to become aware of certain species in a genus and you start to think of them as being the... This sort of archetypal plant, you know, yes. if somebody says yeah. Daphne, something you think, that we're knowledgeable yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if you say yeah. Daphne, you think evergreen, pink, maybe white, shrub, lots of perfume, but you don't think summer deciduous, yellow, non-scented flowering that grows to a foot tall. And yet there is a Daphne that, in mm. fact, does that. So, you know, there's always those outriders and, and differences within a particular genus. And, of course, when you get to family level, it's on for young and old, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. even with the Ptosporum, Ptosporum bicolour, it's called bi- the, one of the native ones, Victorian, it, it has a mixture of purple, purple and cream, purple okay. and yellow. Yep. So, you know, the, the... What's that beautiful weeping native one? I can never remember the Myoporum name. Myoporum floribum? No, 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 the no. Ptosporum. Oh, Ptosporum Phileroides. that's the one. Which that's is, a beautiful yeah. shrub. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful shrub. And that's, it doesn't look like a Ptosporum at all no. to the uninitiated. It's good, yep. for, good for forming copses because mm. it's suckers, if you like copses. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, of course, a lot of people don't like suckers. No, I know. Yeah. No. Why? 
Well, because gardeners don't, gardeners are annoyed if they can't grow something, and they're annoyed if they can. It's <laughs> um, well, that control thing, isn't it? It is a control yeah. thing. People are worried about something that might actually have a bit of zest and life of its own, and and for something to pop up where it wasn't planted uh, is often you know Distressing. an anathema. Oh yeah, they yeah. get really uh, distressed about this thing that sort of suck it. If if you don't want to sell a plant in a nursery, tell them that it suckers uh, or it has prickles, unless it's a rose, <laughs> in which case it seems not to matter. I'm glad you said prickles. Yes. Because they're not thorns. Yes. Yeah. Well, anything prickly, in fact. Yeah. People don't like prickly things. No, that's true. All right. Let's go to Marion and Frankston. Good morning, Marion. Oh, good morning. Um, Look, I've been very naughty and I've left a hellebore in a pot Mm. for too long and it's growing beautifully, but when I tried to pick it up, it's firmly grown into the ground. Mm. And I'm just wondering, is there a good time... To try to remedy that situation. Yeah, this morning, I would think. Um, <laughs> all you do is just slice the roots at the bottom of the pot. Um, so just get a knife or something and cut them off at the drainage holes. Right. Um, there'll be so much root system inside the pot that the removal of the other extraneous roots underneath won't do any real harm. Right. And then I would get it out of that pot and into the ground or into a much larger pot. Although I have to say hellebores, I think, long-term are far better in the ground than they are in pots. They have an exceedingly vigorous root system for the size of the plant above. So if you're going to keep them looking healthy and good in a pot, you need to put them in a surprisingly large pot for the size of the plant. Okay. So I think they're better in the open ground. Okay, well, I will do that this morning. Yeah, do it this morning. And obviously, because you've removed some root system, if you are going to plant it out in the ground, make sure that you soak the roots before they go in uh, and keep it well watered uh, at least for the first week or so until it starts to sort of form some root system out into the existing soil. Okay. Terrific. That's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Marianne. Okay, bye. Yes, I'm regularly cutting roots off the bottoms of things that go through the bottom of pots in the nursery. Mm. Uh, And it very rarely does any harm. No, so, yes, don't be too frightened of them. All right, let's go to Alex in Beaconsfield. Good morning, Alex. Hey, JB. Look, I learned so much from the 3CR gardening program. That's fantastic. Well, this morning I've learned that you've got an overfulness or a superabundance or even a plethora. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, so that's really great. But I have got a question and a comment too. Uh, What function does... dust have in the garden on gardening australia they carry on about putting in a handful of rock dust yeah well alex that just uh puts back a lot of the trace minerals into the soil because we've got such depleted soils here the rock dust is mined mostly over in in wa i think it is and um, it's got a lot of the different minerals that are useful to to most plants so just a sprinkling of that once a year i find to be very beneficial and where would you buy it? Any of the hardware stores, any of the, the garden centres. Righto, righto. And uh, the, probably the most important thing is it was wonderful to hear the discussion on kangaroo paws. And I don't think it's too early to reveal that this time next year there'll be a wonderful uh, workshop and lectures on kangaroo paws at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Cranbourne. It doesn't sound too early at all. Yeah, people can get organised. Yeah, Put well, worth putting it in your diary because it will be a fabulous, uh, a fabulous time with some top speakers. I think those Elliots probably know a little bit about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, look, we do, and uh, it isn't too early to know because I know we're looking at our diary and thinking in terms of perhaps going away at some stage next year. Mm. And we said, okay, we can't go around 25th, 26th, 27th of November because sometimes people really kick themselves if they've made plans and then find that Angus Stewart's coming down to Cranbourne from New South Wales to talk about kangaroo poor cultivars. And we've also got Steve Hopper coming from Perth. And Steve is the person who's done the, I was going to say most of, heaps of work on the kangaroo paw naming and mm-hmm. all the, the species. And uh, Steve was head of Kings Park in Western Australia. He went from there and was head of Kew Gardens in England. And he's now back in WA and he said, yeah, I'd love to come. So, I mean, it's going to be really big and already um, people are are growing things. We may be able to release a new, one of Angus's new cultivars. Oh, fabulous. And it's really going to be important. So next year, um, November 25, 26, 27, keep it free and keep your ear to the ground. Thanks, Alex. (laughs) Oh, you friends attract some brilliant speakers, don't you? No, look, the guy. Oh, look, that's the other thing I should mention: the Cranbourne Gardens. I don't know if I'm sure Alex would have got an email, but day before yesterday, they got the world to, the world tourist garden tourism award was announced in Korea, mm. and the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens won it, and it was presented in Wollongong. Am I right, Roger? Yeah, yeah. there was a conference of botanic gardens in Wollongong and actually the, I think the president of the International Garden Tourism Committee or whatever it is came down and presented them with the, with the plaque anyway. So that's, a, that's another you know, mm. feather in their cap Brilliant. or whatever they Well get. deserved. Yeah, yeah. So if you yeah. haven't been to Cranbourne... <laughs> Shame on you, really. <laughs> Do go, folks, <laughs> yes. because it's, it's different and it's attracted so many awards. Um, Allowed and, to get political on 3CR? No, <laughs> no, not on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Except today. Go on. I think it's marvellous that uh, the gardens at Cranbourne have attracted so many international awards. Yeah, and yet they're being squeezed for budget. Yeah. Mm. Really, that really eats into me when we see so many. I've got nothing against sports grounds, but... <laughs> I have. Everyone <laughs> puts in sports grounds, but we don't support the gardens like it should be maintained at the standard of an international garden. And uh, I think I'll have to write to the politicians and tell them how to yeah. run the state. Go for it, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are right, though. I mean, gardening does tend to come a, a bad second or third with a lot of other, mm. you know, outdoor activities that go on out there. Um, and, look, you can refurbish a sports ground in five minutes flat if you have to. You can't refurbish a garden uh, in the same way because it takes time and energy and expertise to bring a garden back if you allow it to slide backwards so um, you know I have had this argument with our local council over the years about tree management and all those other things that you know if you let it go too far then it's often too too late because you can always whack another coat of paint on the public loose you know you've got to get your priorities and gardening should be right up there and unfortunately in a lot of people's eyes it isn't I think it's also up to us tremendously because there's a well-known phrase use it or lose it Mm. and I think all of us as gardeners need to support our local gardens Mm. um, our local parks and reserves wherever we can yes use them support them 
plenty of opportunity for volunteering in all sorts of areas. There's lots of friends groups out there that could do yes. with more friends. Mm. Yes. Uh, I know the Gisborne Botanic Gardens yeah. is always looking for people to join their little friends group. Uh, and you can get involved. You can go to planting bees. You can learn lots. Uh, it's a great community thing to get involved with. Of course, you should get involved. And in another Bupon is the Melton Botanic Gardens. Well, that's, a, that's a very that's active group. It's is fantastic. It ever. Mm. And the gardens, if you haven't been to the Melton Botanic Gardens, mm. Do, you know, get involved and go along and have a look at that. Look them up on the web. You'll find there's a website. Mm. And they're just putting in their South African collection now. Yeah. So they're they're really expanding. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a really interesting place to visit. So, Alex, it sounds like you might have to get things moving. Oh, have a go. (laughs) (laughs) Just on the kangaroo porth, even though that's... That's just a working title at the moment. There's lots more things in the kangaroo paw family than just kangaroo paws. A wonderful group called Conostylus. I think they're fantastic mm. plants. Not many nurseries grow them. There's a few people doing a bit of tissue culture work now. But there's other other things. And, and Steve Hopper uh, is fa- a fantastic bloke. He's just... He's, He'll talk at your level. He's one of those sort of characters who can talk at any level. And um, he, he's writing a book on the whole kangaroo poor family now. So, as just, long as it is still the same family, <laughs> it will be. It'll be might the, not be the by blood then. route. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Might not be by then. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, I think it will be. But anyway, look, yeah, people keep that in mind. It, uh, it'll probably go for maybe three or four days. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Good on you, Alex. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye. Bye for now. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Gwen and Roger Elliott. We are running through until 9.15 this morning, but if you need to head out, you can download the show later by going to www.3cr.org forward slash podcasts. But right now, if you want to speak to us on air, give us a call on 94190155 or for the outside line, Call nine four one nine eight three double seven. Roger, I thought that was interesting uh, what you said about kind of stylus because oh, yeah, for me, yeah. I just think kangaroo paw, and that's all I think of is yeah, kangaroo yeah, paw. Yeah. You don't really think of anything else related, do you? Because um, they're, there's they're other, so other great blancoa. There's only one species in the genus, but yeah. the red bugle. And there's uh, all, all the blood roots too. There's quite a few Australian hemidorums, mm. um, which some some are just insignificant black flowered things but I know a person very good for the gothic garden well (laughs) surprise Stephen doesn't collect them well Well, there you go yes Halloween floral arrangement yeah yeah, that's right exactly yes there's nothing wrong with a good black flower at this time of the year (laughs) well we have an American friend and she collects black flowers yeah oh there are I've got customers who do yeah Yeah. and Um, uh, she's quite keen but um, yeah so there's there's a whole range of uh, plants in that that family which we, we need to explore a bit yeah be good. Fantastic. All right, well, let's have a look at something yes, that you brought. something in. of oh. your plethora. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought a shiny leaf. It's nearly as shiny as Stephen's. Yeah, almost. Yeah. But not quite. But uh, a lot of people would know about wattle and daub houses in uh, New South Wales when the early settlers bit, you know, built them. And, this and was that not what we call wattle now, wasn't mm. it? No, that's right. It looks like a wattle, but it's not. Um and the name, <laughs> would you believe the name has just gone? Oh. Calicoma. C A L I C O M A. And then the second bit is Serrata folia. Because it has serrated foliages. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. It's got saw like edges to the leaves. But gl- glossy leaves, cream flowers, and it does have a bit of a perfume, mm-hmm. especially late afternoon. 
but uh, it, it's a really tough plant. It grows is. well at Macedon. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah it grows it, fine up there. I've it's got a bit of a tree, isn't it? How oh, you can get quite big. I, yeah. I know a friend's got one in her garden down near the creek that uh, would be six or seven metres mm. tall. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know that it's stopped yet. No, <laughs> well, It's no. trying to get the light yeah. probably and, and, the and they are sort of quite upright in yeah. form. And it's one of those plants that sometimes will send out shoots from leafless wood. Mm. So it's a plant you can prune if you find that it's getting too big. Mm. Um, you know, long long as you prune judiciously, then don't wreck the shape of the plant and mm. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's pruning and there's hacking, isn't there, really? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're trying to build a waffle and daub yes. home, yeah. well, you'd really hack it. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, the, the flowers, they're about uh, oh, a bit over a centimetre across, nearly half an inch, I suppose. And... Um, but it's flowering now, and the new growth can be quite rusty, hairy. So it's got quite a lot of hairs on it. But So Calicoma, serratifolia. If you've got a bit of a sheltered spot, it will grow in full sunshine and won't grow as big. But it does like a little bit of uh, protection. So it's... Yeah. Um, Another foliage plant. Yeah, I like this one. I've never seen this one before. This fascinates me. Okay. Mm. It's a plant called Cutsia, C-U-T-T-S-I-A. It's just in bud, and it's got these great big clusters of flowers uh, that sit on the ends of the branches. It almost looks like the flower head of an elderflower, the Sambucus. It does. It does. It, it's yeah. got that look about the flower. Yeah. yeah. But the foliage is completely different. Yeah, Cutsia viburnia. And uh, it, it'll grow probably f- four to eight metres high too, but it usually takes quite a long time. And um, it's well suited to places like Dandenongs, and it'll probably mm-hmm. go, grow Yeah, probably grow up, up there for yeah. me. And uh, quite fairly dense foliage. The, the leaves are quite large. How big are they? Three, four inches. Yeah. Uh, you know, ten centimeters long. It looks like almost like a green version of the Japanese gold dust laurel, the Acuba. Yeah, it's got that yep, sort yep, of yep. look about the foliage. Yeah, and it's, it's in the Escalonia family, mm-hmm. which is, and it does have a lovely sweet perfume. Uh, the flowers are just probably oh, half a centimeter across when they open. Starry flowers in mass, and uh, and those heads there are probably. Is it a 15. monotypic genus, or uh, I think it might be. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah very interesting. You mean only one? Yeah. Species in the genus. I, I th- you yeah. might be right. Sir. Native yeah. elderberry. Yeah. Common name. From uh, well, hence it looks like an elderberry yeah. flower, as I said, the Sambucus. So That's there you right. go. Yeah. Southeastern Queensland, northeast New South Wales. I think we're. And you think it'd still grow right in the cooler parts? Well, if it grows in the Dandenongs, I mean, we're just that fraction bit colder again. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, especially with a bit of protection. I. I haven't seen it damaged by cold up there, but, you know. And it's obviously a very shade-tolerant shrub by the looks of it. A shade, and there is a plant. I should mention that the plants we've got today have actually come out of Kawara Garden up at Calorama. With permission, of course. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Now, we were just on on duty, welcoming people there yesterday, and I said, oh, Gwen, we could get some flowers. So um, Kawara Garden is on the Mount Dandenong Tourist Road. It's open from one to four today. And it's obviously looking very spectacular at the moment oh, with the array of things you brought down. Yeah. It is. All the, the Waratahs the, the are nearly finishing, yeah. but mm. they hold the Waratah collection and the Baronia collection yeah, there. For and the, um, the plant yes. trust. Plant we, trust. We, plant trust, yes, yeah. yes. It's GPCAA, but plant yeah. trust to everybody yeah. now, yeah. which is mm. good. It's simplified it. Yeah, yeah. now, Stephen, we've, um, this caller might um, be relevant for you. Penelope has a wagelia that has never flowered and wondering when she should prune it. 
Well, if it's never flowered, that's a bit odd because um, wajilas are one of those shrubs that, you know, often hard to stop flowering uh, when they're established in the garden. The only thing I can think of that might be a problem is that maybe it's in far too much shade. Mm-hmm. It'd be about the only thing I can think of. And pruning it isn't going to encourage it to flower. What it's going to, in fact, do is encourage it to have lots more growth. Um, uh, Wajilias, like a lot of those deciduous northern hemisphere shrubs, um, you prune by removing some of the older canes completely. You don't cut the whole plant back. So you go through the plant and selectively take out your older stems. You do the same with forsythias and colquitsias. There's a whole range of those sort of deciduous plants, so that's the best way to treat them. Uh, but if Wajilia is not flowering, then it sounds to me like, it, and if the plant is healthy enough and what have you, it sounds to me like it's just not got enough light. Yeah, awesome. uh, so I'd be more inclined to, um, to try shifting it in the winter into a sunnier aspect um, but certainly when you do prune them like a lot of those spring flowering things you do them straight after flowering and you take the oldest wood out then but if it hasn't flowered at all then there's something else going on yeah and it's got nothing to do with pruning yeah uh, in fact i've seen old plants that haven't been touched in donkey's years full of half dead wood and so forth still flowering their heads off um but looking a bit scruffy all bit um so pruning really shouldn't make a difference with the wajidia sure so and would you prune it back a touch if you were moving it i would but again i'd do what i would do if i was normally going to prune it i'd actually thin it out i'd yeah. leave some of the canes intact if i could yeah. uh, and take out all the older canes so that it wasn't um stressing the plant when you move it and do it in the sort of late autumn early winter as soon as the foliage is shed and we've had a bit of a break in the weather and it should hardly notice it's happened i mean they're one of those plants that should shift very easily most of those deciduous shrubs do so would a bit of potash or something that may look it's hard to know it's hard to know but look it can't do any harm Uh, a little bit of potash around anything that's not flowering well really probably can't do any harm Uh, but whether it really help or not i think is a moot point because it's Mm. so dependent on where it's growing yeah just consider its position yeah i think yeah. yeah, yes, yes. Consider where it's growing and if you think that it's in a spot where it's probably not getting very much direct sunlight at all, that's probably the main reason. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right, well, let's go to Jenny in Newham. Good morning, Jenny. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Stephen, and uh, very nice to hear the Elliots too. We have very intermittent reception of your program. I was going to say, you're lucky to get us where you are. Well, I, I, I get much better reception on the on the telephone, I can assure you, <laughs> than on the radio. Brilliant. <laughs> um, but look, I was uh, ringing, I've got it, uh, and well, just following on from what you were just saying there, Stephen, when pruning things like the spireas, do you do that from early on? I've got some that are about two years old. Would you take the old ones out now? No, no. if they're only two years old, you probably don't need to. It's, it's probably wood that's getting on to four or five years old right. that I'd okay. start to recycle. Okay, so, um, so I'd leave them alone for the first three or four years. As long as they've got good vigorous growth on them and they're happy and they're flowering and they're doing their thing, yep. then I would leave them alone. Uh, but then after that third or fourth year, I'd start assessing some of the branches and anything that's getting really twiggy, yep. uh, um, uh, and perhaps losing vigour, then consider removing that back close to the ground. Right. I, 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 and it looks wonderful. I know when you do that, because I have done that previously. Oh, yeah. It, look, it refreshes the whole plant. Yeah. You get rid of that dreadful twigginess, and particularly with things like spireas, which can often be quite elegantly arching, yes. uh, it reinforces that natural tendency, yes. and, it, and, and the whole plant just looks better. Yes, I agree. Um, but I did actually ring, because I've got a hedge of rosemary, which I planted probably two years ago, and we're consistently getting dieback in uh, parts of it. So I've got about seven plants in a row, and every now and then there's a, there's a whole branch that's gone in one of the plants. Why would that be? Is it sort of 
fungal, maybe? Uh, I'd be surprised if it was fungal. I think it's more likely to be something environmental. Uh, is it possible that they're getting a bit wet in the winter? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because um, rosemary does like really sharp drainage. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't think of any other real reason. I mean, where you are, it should grow fine. I mean, they're pretty cold-hardy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And as long as they get good winter drainage, um, there's no real reason why rosemary shouldn't make quite a respectable hedge for you out there. Mm. Yeah. You might want to try uh, just a foliar uh, seaweed feed just to, you know, improve the vigour of the plant. Yes, oh, they're, they're certainly vigorous. The ones, I mean, they've grown very quickly and they've grown very tall and I've been uh, just chopping the tops off them just to keep them a bit more um, broad in the bank. Mm. Uh, but I just find, I, I mean, it could be that they're slightly damp, but I wouldn't have thought so. It's on a bit of a slope, so, I mean... The, it doesn't always carry through though to good drainage no, you know a lot of people true. assume because they've got a slope that the water's getting away yes. but it's often what their subsoil's doing uh that makes a difference um i'd be very tempted next winter to actually dig a hole just mm. outside the root zone uh particularly if you've got one that's got a fair few dead bits through it and just check that out because yeah. that seems to well that would be for me one of the main causes for rosemary to have problems right okay well that's, that's sort of haven't got a tall dog i was yeah. just wondering that <laughs> yes. that's what i was trying to work out how to say. <laughs> Could I ask one more quick question just on behalf of my mother because I was just talking to her and she said, oh, you should listen to Stephen because Stephen and the Elliots are on and, you know, it's all good. Um, and she's having terrible trouble with thrip on her pale roses in her city garden. It's a very protected garden. Um, is thrip more likely to be in a sort of a microclimate area where you yes. don't get a lot of breeze? Yeah, thrip loves a nice sheltered environment and it loves pale coloured flowers. Yes, uh, cool. So really she's created a thrip habitat. <laughs> um and look, there's not an awful lot you can do about it. I mean, I don't want to be advising people to spray chemicals all over their place to, to discourage thrip. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that does come and go. Um, but, you know, I'd be starting to get a passion for darker-coloured flowers and, <laughs> and maybe open the garden up a bit more if it's at all possible. Um, I think at the end of the day, you've got to either live with these issues or you've got to find ways of moving on in different directions. Right. And there's plenty of flowers out there that thrip aren't attracted to. Um, albeit they won't possibly be pale-coloured roses. But, you know, there are other things. And maybe mum just needs to start sort of thinking laterally because if it does worry her and it's making the flowers look dreadful, um, then she's not enjoying her garden so much. Well, no, she's picking them, but the uh, perfume is lovely, but the flowers are very disfigured. Yeah, Yeah, well, it is. And, And so I think you've got to decide whether it's something you can live with or something that you need to move away from. Well, at 93, she's very flexible, so I'm sure she'll manage that. Yes, yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. It's great to be able to, to tap in every now and then yeah. where I can sort of get reception. Fantastic. Fabulous. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. Bye-bye. Where is Newham? Just on the other side of Mount Macedon. So oh, it's, it's, it's on the other side of the range, and that's why I say it, you know, it surprises me when anybody can pick us up over there because uh, I can get it on the Macedon side because we're on the, the south side of the ranges. Yeah. But generally when you get to Woodend and Kyneton and sort of areas on the north, uh, then they can't pick up 3CR so easily. That's why Pam in Kyneton 
surprises me that she catches us so mm. often because um, I would have thought it would be difficult. So she must have a radio with particularly good reception or something. Yeah, it, is, it is quite strange because I listen to it wherever I'm driving around and interestingly coming down Smith Street right in front of the studio, it's quite bad reception. <laughs> well, there <laughs> you go. Really you do know one of our, that our main transmitters, though, is in Werribee. Right. So it may not have anything to do with where yeah. we're actually are this yeah, morning, yeah. Uh, more so to do with the transmitter in Werribee perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just um, going back to that thrip issue, I, I wonder if there's a compa- companion plant that she could put in. I don't know, you know, nasturtiums are, you know, usually a really good deterrent and that's something that could grow well under roses if she likes Who that. Who knows? That I mean, things like companion plants um, are not going to uh, solve, solve the problem. No. You know, they might, they might in fact they help, might help sort of level it out a wee bit Um, but um, yeah I just don't like the idea of using a lot of chemicals to to deal with bugs no, like that because no. uh, you really would need to use a systemic probably to mm-hmm. actually get into the flower heads and everything else to actually deal with the issue and of course they keep flying in anyway so once the chemicals u- used by date hits well then they'll be off and running again and it is very weather dependent I mean when you get this humid sort of weather like we're getting at the moment uh, it's a wonderful breeding ground for bugs mm, mm. well it's such lovely such lovely weather isn't it well we're, you know, we're enjoying it weather. why yeah. why in fact shouldn't thrip exactly mm. exactly all right well let's go to jill from the herb society good morning jill good morning um can i tell about what's happening at the herb society absolutely we would expect you to jill <laughs> uh, we're having australian bush for our essences with caitlin graham jones who's a qualified naturopath and so she'll be talking about things like bottle brush and, and gum flowers and things like that, which have other uses besides being beautiful. And when and, is that? Um, this is at Burnley Horticultural College, room 10, in the main cream brick building. And that's 500 Yarra Boulevard. It's um, Richmond on the internet, and it's Burnley on the map <laughs> Melway and, so awkward and anyway, what date is, what is that on we're also having a talk short talk by Pat Down on edible flowers which will be fascinating fantastic and what dates are both of those so that's the that's the 5th of November yep this coming Thursday 7.30pm sure and and so was that the date for the Australian bushflower essences or the that's second? right the same the same day yes. ah, the we same have a short day. talk and then we have a long presentation lovely mm. and uh, how much is that to get in this is just five dollars there's supper there's also her plants to buy and we have door prizes and sounds like good value Jill she's stocking ourselves a bit so um, because we um, people who mind the herbs, you know, over December and January get a bit tired. <laughs> uh, Can I ask a question, Stephen? Sure. Mm-hmm. On my um, uh, wormwood, the white wormwood, when the new leaves come, they're sort of distorted. Mm-hmm. And I would think that wormwood would be one of the herbs that would be, um, you know, preventing in but... Yeah, look, distorted growth nearly always is some sort of sap-sucking insect, so it's it's likely to be aphid or something like that. Oh, it probably is. Yeah, and it's I funny because, you know, people say, off. you know, plant chives and onion relatives underneath your roses to keep away aphid, and I've often had uh, oh. aphid on, on chives, <laughs> you know. So, you, you, 
you will find that bugs will have a go at whatever's there sometimes. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably not that bad that it's going to cripple the plant. So you can can sort of live with these things or just nip off the new growth and wait for the next batch because the aphids will probably have gone away by then. Well, it's all gone into all that's all gone into the compost anyway. Yeah, well, exactly. So, yeah, so it it sounds to me more like, more likely to be aphid than almost anything else. But without seeing it, it's hard to say. Um, but obviously, with wormwoods, it's not something to get too worried about. They'll come no. they'll come through it easily. They're very good survivors, isn't it? Oh yes, yes. In fact, sometimes far too good a survivor. Some of those Artemises. But anyhow. And can I just tell uh, that there's five gardens open next weekend from 10am to 4pm around Mount Eliza and Frankston. And um, this is... um, I've put it on the Herb Society website and on the Facebook page for the Herb Society of Victoria. So um, maybe I can come on and talk about it being on Sunday in detail next Sunday. Fair enough. But, um, yeah, they're, they're fantastic gardens. You know, everything from a frog pond to a um, productive garden, you know, vegetables, fruits, everything. So, and how very... can people get more information on those, Jill? I can get more information on that. Hold on. No, I'm just wondering how, how can people, can they give you a call to get I'll, more information? I'll, actually, I'll just give the phone number because there's a phone number on the invitation. Good, so and that's probably the best way for people to go. Yeah, well, I know there's lots of people who don't have internet. Yes, so here we go. The phone number for that event um, is... Take off the glasses. um, 9775-3301. Fantastic. Okay, and they're at Mornington Road and Armsbury Road and Belbrook Court and Sea Hayes Court and, yes, they've got a lovely um, clematis um, invitation bookmark for people. Oh, that's a, that's a novel idea, isn't it? Mm. Yes, it is Very nice, sweet. isn't it? All right, fantastic. Well, thanks, Jill. And if, if people want to go to the, the um, November the 5th, I could give my phone number. Sure. 0478-652-223. Fantastic. Thank you, Jill. You want me to say it again? Sure. 0478-652-223. Excellent. Well, I know when I hear it on the phone. It's blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I sometimes get the last we can numbers, say it too quickly. So That's right. I say it as though everybody's... Um, yes, and I am. I understand. <laughs> Good on you, Jill. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for everything. Okay, bye, bye for now. Bye. And we should go straight to our friend Margot in Carnton. Good morning, Margot. Good morning, AB, and everyone there. Are you getting a good reception for us in Kyneton this morning? Surprisingly, it is. That's just what I rang about, because some weeks it's so crackly that you just give up. Yeah. Um, And then today it's clear as a bell. I don't know if it's something to do with the misty rain that they're supposedly forecast. I think it's the people in the studio. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's, it's the talent in the studio that makes it work. Yeah, maybe, don't know. But anyway, <laughs> today it's really good, but sometimes I can't listen. But So what I do in that case, when I'm working at the computer, I just podcast it. Oh, yeah. okay. And it is really terrific because you can roll it. If you miss a name or something, you can roll the tape back. You know, tape, that's old. Which you can't do with Roger or I. 
that's right. So, but you could, you know, take down the spelling of a na- of a plant name or something because you can just go back with the arrow on the computer, and it's terrific. You can listen to it again and again, should you wish. Fantastic. And what's happening in your garden, Margot? Oh, we are just well keeping trying to keep water up to new plantings. At the moment, where we're living, we've planted over a hundred trees, and probably the wrong year to do that. But um, we're we're trying. Guess you've got to get them in sometime, haven't you? Well, that's right. They're safer in the ground than in pots. But yeah. um, we've been we've learned through experience that we plant and mulch straight away, and it's been terrific. Yeah. Uh, what have you put in? Ah, oh, we've put oh, we've got two uh, great big long native beds wrapped around old uh, you know gum tree clumps, you know really old mature ones, well out from the root zone we've made sort of curved beds like snakes and in other areas right around the lawn area we just put in all uh, leftover hospital bed case trees from the nursery whatever we can uh, find yeah yeah i call them my refugees yeah they come home and they often end up being every bit as good as anything that people will spend hours trying to pick the best one out of the batch absolutely (laughs) we're surprised actually when you Plant something, you know, may have lost its main leader or something through a storm or whatever, and um, they just they just look fantastic in the landscape once you plant them, surrounded by a few other things. And um, yeah, we've got a local tree guy. He comes and dumps the um, good wood chips for us, mm-hmm. and um, we just found putting that straight on and a bit of a dripper hose, and um, we're having a terrific success so far. Although it is, you know. Everything's on a big scale, so it's a lot more work. I'm getting very fit. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, good on you, Margot. Lovely to lovely to chat. Good. And, yeah, just to remind everyone that, you know, the podcast, way to go. Yep. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Margot. Bye, Bye for now. And we've had a uh, caller off air from Catherine of East Melbourne has a 15-year-old wisteria that is very healthy except that it has never flowered. It was pruned back a little last year and it's on a west-facing wall. Hmm, that's, it? that's a story you hear quite often, yeah. isn't it? Uh, if it's on a west-facing wall, then one would assume it's getting enough sunlight, although west-facing walls aren't always in full sun. Depends what's on the other side. Yeah, well, exactly. There can be a fence right mm. there as well. Um, wisterias need good drainage, full sun, and regular pruning because wisterias flower on spur wood like apples do. They don't flower particularly well on those great big long tendrils they produce. So those big long tendrils are quite useful to make the plant bigger. So until you get it to the size you want, you use those pieces. But once you've got it there, at least twice a year you need to prune wisteria, and some people do it three times a year. Um, and you cut those long tendrily bits back to one or two buds from where they started. So then they will shoot from those buds and you'll get two tendrils that will form. And then you cut those back to one or two buds from where they started. And that way you build up this twiggy, woody spur growth. And that's where you'll get your concentration of flowers. So you need to build that up in the plant. If you're not building that up, you you just won't get as good a flowering on your wisteria. Also, the other issue with wisteria is, and you won't potentially know this when you buy one, but it's always worth asking your nursery when you're buying one, is the wisteria seedling raised or is the wisteria vegetatively propagated? If it's seedling raised, seedling wisterias can take 7 to 10 years to flower. So at 15 years, that might be pushing it a bit, but nonetheless, they can take a long time to flower. If it's vegetatively propagated, one is that it will be from a known clone, so it will hopefully be a named variety, in which case you know what its potential is. Uh, So it'll be white or it'll be pink or it'll be long racemed or it'll be whatever. Uh, And it should also flower quite young. 
So vegetatively propagated wisterias are the way to go if you can get them, preferably on their own roots and not grafted because they have a tendency to sucker from below the graft. Um, so they're all the questions you should ask before you buy one. But at 15 years, that's a bit late. Um, so it's, it's all about pruning. As long as that wisteria is getting lots of, loads of sun, uh, it's obviously healthy by, by the question. So mm. as long as it's getting loads of sun, then it needs to be pruned regularly. I do it straight after flowering when the new tendrils come out. I do it about midsummer again, and then you can even do it in the winter if you've got lots of extra growth on it then. And you build up that hard, woody structure. Yep. And that's where you get your flowers. So the fact that it hasn't flowered, she should be pruning it right back. Well, right back to to those, to those buds. Yep. Yeah, you don't go back into wood that's old yep. because then you're potentially taking off flowering wood. But all that see, current season's growth needs to be cut back regularly and you do it down to two or three buds from where it started each time. Yeah. And that way you build up this nice heavy woody plant, which is exactly what a wisteria should be if it's going to flower well. Yep. yep. So they're the main things. But, yes, if you're buying wisterias, it's really important to ask for vegetatively propagated on their own roots plants. They're the two things that you need to ask when you're buying one. Generally speaking, if they've got a cultivar name, like it's Wisteria sinensis jacko or Wisteria um, floribunda shirinoda or whatever, if it's got a cultivar name, then it should have been vegetatively propagated. So that is a good sign. But then you need to ask whether it's been grafted or not because I know a lot of wisterias that end up the understock takes over. People don't realise because it looks exactly the same to the, as the top. So there's no difference between your understock and your and, and your sign wood. And that's where the real risk is. I mean, with most plants, if the understock shoots, you can tell because it's a yeah, different foliage. Yeah, yeah. But with wisterias, there's basically no difference. Um, and so people just don't realise what's happened. Mm. So, yeah, so they're the things to keep in mind. Mm, very good. So hopefully after 15 years and a bit of, uh, a bit of pruning, yeah, hopefully you'll get a flower. And it, it's like me with my apricot, which flowers yeah, prolifically every week. year and yeah. never gives fruit. And, and every year I'm like, if you don't fruit this year, I'm taking you out. And then I think, oh, but you're such a good-looking tree. I really don't want to. <laughs> uh, it's, it's got a wicked and evil intent with you, I think, yeah, A.B. Yeah, oh, I think so. I think so. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan and Gwen and Roger Elliott. Uh, we do have time for some more questions, so if you'd like to give us a call in the studio, the number is 94190155, or to speak to Anne on the outside line, the number is 94198377. So let's get to some more of these plants. All right, well, another one I'd like to talk about this morning. Oh, it's so sweet. <laughs> Isn't this gorgeous? Uh, it's Well, it looks like what it is. It's actually a plant in the African violet family, but it's not a tropical member of the African violet family. This is actually an alpine member of the family, uh, Ramonda myconi, um, and it comes from the Pyrenees Mountains. Uh, so it's actually a high alpine, grows up in, in rock crevices, up in the mountains, snow, all that sort of stuff goes on up there. Uh, and yet, to all intents and purposes, it looks very much like an African violet. Its foliage is a little bit more heavily veined, but it grows in rosettes like an African violet, and it gets these beautiful little purple flowers that look very like an African violet. Uh, but I can grow it at Mount Macedon out in the garden. Um, now, the trouble with these high alpine plants uh, like Ramonda is, uh, If you're going to grow them in, say, suburban Melbourne, they're probably better as pot plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're probably better grown in a fernery or under a large tree or something like that where they get plenty of light but no direct sunlight to speak of because they tend to grow on sort of south-facing rock sort of ledges and things in the wild. So they don't get a lot of natural sun. And they actually grow on their side in the wild. Mm. Uh, so the big trick is, is to make sure that you don't let a lot of water just sit in at the crown of the plant during the winter months. 
Um, Sounds like they'd be good in a vertical garden. Well, they would be good in a vertical garden if you could get them in enough quantity (laughs) to plant in a vertical garden because I don't know anybody uh, commercially who is growing this plant apart from myself and I only ever have about half a dozen of them to sell a year. So um, if you wanted them in some sort of scale, well, it's going to be difficult to do that. Having said that, they propagate from leaf cuttings just like an African violet does. Mm -hmm. So if you want to grow more Ramondas, which I would um, uh, suggest you shouldn't, you should just come and buy them from me. Uh, <laughs> but if you decided you did want to grow some more, then you pluck a whole healthy young leaf with a leaf stem, slice the bottom of the leaf stem nice and neatly so that it's got a nice sharp end on it, bury the leaf stem with the leaf just clear of some perlite or sharp sand or something like that, keep it moist, perhaps put a bag over it to keep the humidity around it, and in a matter of a few weeks it'll have started producing roots and you'll get two or three baby plants off each leaf just like you would with an African violet. So you just treat them in much the same way, but they don't need the heat. Mm. So they'll cope with any any amount of cold. And there's quite a number of these cold climate, um, what we know as, as Gesneriads, coming from the Gesneriaceae family, uh, and yet you rarely ever see them grown. Uh, there's some that come from the hills of, um, of Turkey, and not Turkey, of uh, Bulgaria and Greece, um, so up in the Balkans, that sort of area. There are some lovely Chinese... Gesneriads um, that come from the mountains of China um, and so the family sort of extends around, uh, Gwen Roger and I were talking about one of the Australian representatives which grows on the sides of tree ferns in gullies and things called Fieldsia uh, which I'll bring in at some stage in flower because I do grow it, it's a really pretty little plant and lovely to grow up your tree fern if you happen to have one uh, so it's a really interesting group of plants that you don't see grown very much. What's uh, the life cycle of it? Well, it's a long-term perennial. I mean, yeah. your original crown can go on for years and years and years. Yeah. It will slowly produce side crowns, so you'll end up with a mound of crowns. Uh, unlike with an African violet, I don't think it matters. A lot of people like to keep their African violets as single crowns and get that sort of very symmetrical form to them. Uh, but if you've got a, a Ramonda or one of its other relatives like Habaleas and things like that that has ended up as a mound of foliage, uh, it can still keep functioning and flowering and doing very well. Uh, and the only sort of um, regular maintenance, I think, that's fairly important is the removal of dead leaves. Mm-hmm. So you just get in and pluck out dead leaves uh, out of the crowns so that you're not getting that sort of dead build-up in around them, which mm. sometimes can encourage insect pests and bugs and gives a good place for slugs and snails to hide and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, But they'll last for many years. They flower for ages in the spring, early summer. Um, and, um, yeah, they're not a hard plant to maintain, but probably as a pot plant would be the best way to grow most of these yeah, things. Yeah, and it'll just spread in the pot? Yeah, you'll end up – well, an individual crown could end up easily sort of in the old measurements about seven or eight inches across. Yeah. Uh, and then it will, you'll produce side crowns. I've actually had a Ramonda in a big pot, which I divided a couple of years ago, and it was probably in a 12-inch pot, and it had completely covered the top of the pot uh, and got masses of these lovely mauve flowers. Uh, all I need now is the albino form and I'll be happy. There's a lovely white one out there which I haven't been able to track down yet. Um, and I'm on the hunt for anything in the Gesneriaceus family that is cold hardy because there really are some very, very pretty and interesting plants. Yeah. And of course, some people may be aware that in that family it also includes a whole pile of plants that are sometimes known as lipstick plants, the calumnias. Mm-hmm. And they have these amazing tubular red flowers. So they don't look anything like a, an African violet, 
but they're in the same family. And there's also a range of cold hardy plants that look more like that side of the family um, uh, than the African violet side of the family. Uh, and I'm also on the hunt for those. Mm. In fact, I guess the fieldsy is probably more on that side in of the, the family because it's got that sort of yeah. tubular flower yeah. instead of the flat open flower. Mm, sounds um, like a fascinating family. It is. Well, there's cold hardy gloxinias. Yeah. You know, so there's different varieties um, uh, in the Gloxinia group. And you think of them as these big sort of tropical hothouse things with those vast big flowers. Uh, I've got one that comes from Paraguay, Uruguay and Argentina. Um, Seningia tuberflora, I think it's called, and it's a white-scented one. And all you have to do is is make sure its tubers are kept dryish in the winter when it's dormant. And and it's quite cold-hardy. So, yeah, there's a lot of things in the African violet family that people aren't aware of. Yeah, gorgeous. All right, well, let's go to another caller. Let's go to John and Rosanna. Good morning, John. G'day. Um, Stephen, I'm not going to ask you about lemon trees. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> I've asked you a few times before about lemon trees. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd give you a break for once. No, I, I'm talking about, uh, what do you call them, Iceland poppies, what it, uh, the things you were talking about before. We weren't talking about Iceland. No, 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 no. What, 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 I'm just trying to think of completely forgotten while I was waiting and I was listening to you. Um, um, uh, not wanting to ask about hellebores? Yeah, hellebores. Oh, yes, hellebores. Yes, of course, yes, 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 yes. yes. Now, Stephen, the problem is that along the side of my house, there's a very dry bed which got nothing, had nothing growing in it for years. It used to have hydrangeas, but they're all gone. And there's just, it's just dead earth. Yeah. But there's hellebores that came from my old dad's garden, my, long, my late father's garden, mm. and they've grown up through a crack between the bricks on the edge. Yes, as they will, yeah. And I'm just wondering what would be the safest way to remove them to replant them because I don't want them on the edge of the path. Uh, I the, the bricks off. Well, I was going to say, are the bricks mortared or concrete? Yes, they are. I really want to get rid of the brick thing anyway. It's, it's, well, then I'd start pulling the bricks out yeah. uh, to expose the roots of the hellebores and then I'd shift the hellebores in the winter. Yes, and, and what, what shall I do with them? How will I replant them just for the time being sort of thing? When I do, will I put them in pots? Or? No, no, I just plant them straight back into a, into a prepared piece of garden bed. Yes, and prepared how? Lots of compost and leaf mould and certainly not dry and dusty like you're talking about that yeah, bed yeah. being. But I'm, su- I'm surprised they survived so long. Well, they'll survive better in that sort of aspect because, in fact, the brickwork will keep their roots cool and there'll be moisture under the bricks. Yes, yes And so yes. they'll be getting at the moisture there, whereas if they were up in the bed, they'd be dry and, and struggling. Yes, yes, yeah. All right, well, um, thanks for your advice because my... Um Good lady's been at me for several years now to do something about it. Oh, only several <laughs> years. Oh, well, there you go. So one wonder she's still a good lady. <laughs> well, she's, not, she's not here at the moment, so I can oh, say what I like. She's in Adelaide with our daughter and granddaughter. Uh, so. She'll podcast you later. You'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephen, thank you again. Gwen would like to have yeah, a quick comment. Stephen, were you saying the best time to do it is winter? Yes, yes. With hellebores, the best time to do it would be in the winter. I mean, if you do it now, you're going to break some roots and damage the plants a little bit. Yeah. And to lift them now, particularly with the hot weather coming on is risky but it's risky because they've got to break the bricks away from around them yeah and you're going to, yes you're going to do a bit of disturbing in this so i i really do think that i would leave it until the cool weather and when when i do it should i moisten the ground etc around it if it's not already yeah oh look it always is better to have moist ground if you're shifting something yeah yeah because it's incredibly dry yeah yeah so, so, yeah, so um, i would i would water the path which sounds a bit odd but yes i would <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah it's for sure yeah mm. well 
I'll, I'll try and get back to you another day, Stephen, with a lemon tree oh, question. That's kind of you. Thank <laughs> we, you. We have missed those, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, we have, yes. Bye. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Oh, we've got quite a few questions. Oh, everybody's awake so, now. Yeah, everyone's awake. So let's go to George and Nunawadding. Good morning, George. Oh, good morning. How uh, can we help you, George? Um, I, I'd like to speak to Roger Ryan really about this. Yeah, fine. Okay. Go oh, for it. Good, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a Valencia orange and... Uh, it's um, it, it's been a bit neglected for a couple of years, um, uh, but um, one of the things I wanted to address you with is uh, is compost a fertilizer? To some degree, there'll be there'll be nutrients in compost. Maybe not very strong nutrients, but yeah, they're they're valuable. And uh, for around you know things like oranges and lemons, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, if you're wanting to give it uh, to get more growth out of your plant, well, okay, you probably need to to use something else. And there's there's plenty of uh, special citrus foods around which can help. Even you just what you, what is a good uh, fertilizer for Valencia orange? Um, well, in, any of the slow release fertilizers that uh, you know that are marketed for that purpose are, are pretty good. So even just cow, you know cow manure and things like that to put around too, yeah, be, should be fine. Um, would it likely to be the this, the the the, uh, the the problem with it as a lack of rainwater over recent years? Oh yeah, yeah that that, that can citrus be. trees like plenty of moisture. Yeah, yeah, they like moist moisture there for sure. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you might need to give it a few long drinks, George. Well, I've been doing that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It doesn't seem to be responding. It's got a lot of little little oranges on it, which they're not very big, and oh. I, I used to get big oranges okay. uh, a couple yeah. of years ago. No, I, I'd say moisture. Do, does it, do you need to just prune some of the foliage off the plant and let a bit more sunlight and that get through to yeah, it? Yeah, well, I've, I've done that, uh, right. actually, in... Okay. Um, on adjacent uh, plants that we were, we were creating a bit of shade, and I've had them cut off uh-huh. and to give it more light. But it's a bit difficult to get up up to the top of the plant for me now. I'm yeah. eighty five years. And, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, uh, I'd like to prune it at the top and make a cup shape in of the of the plant, but. Uh, yeah, sometimes even by pruning off some of the the branches that come down to the bottom, you know, if you've got some branches that are down low and they tend to go up and fill the centre, you know, even just to take a couple of those out down low and you can just pull them through the plant so you don't have, don't have to climb up on ladders and things like that. Mm. You could do that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think what the general consensus here is more water, I think. Yeah. And making sure the water's getting down. Yeah. You know, you can be not saying you're watering off. well, but it may not be getting down through into the root system properly. So you may have to yeah. inst- investigate using a wetting agent or um, finding some way of holding the water around the base of the plant until it soaks right down and doesn't just run off. What I've been doing, I've been uh, digging holes, uh, short holes, about probably uh, 10 inches deep, and I've been about uh, put in about 15 of them along the drip line. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, putting in uh, some of the rich grow 
fertiliser that I bought okay. and watering it in. Yeah, well, that should, should help. Yeah, that should help. But all these things take time, too, to start actually working on the plant, too. So you do have to be a bit patient if the plant has, in fact, struggled uh, for it to start coming back into good uh, vigour again. What is the expected life of a such an orange tree long long time yeah they should they should outlast me i reckon would you uh, say uh, 40 years yeah yeah oh yes you should easily get 40 years out of a good citrus yep okay well thank you very much that's right. been very informative okay because the root system of a you know citrus plants can be very very tight and dense mm. you know especially near the surface they're surface rooted and um so but what you've done by getting out to the drip line that can be beneficial yeah. Yeah. Anyway, All right. see how you go. Okay, thank you. Thanks, George. Bye. Bye. Bye for now. All right, let's go straight to Lee in Kilsyth. Good morning, Lee. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, hi, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> Lee has been spelt differently. <laughs> how are uh, you? Oh, hello, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> because you said that you weren't busy, I thought I'd make you busy. Um, I've got a little fig tree, which um, my neighbour's a bit worried about that the roots might go underneath the, the concrete of his driveway, and um, I really would like to move it, but um, it's got a little bit of fruit on it at the moment. Um, when is the best time to move it? When it doesn't have leaves. Yeah, yeah, I would move a fig in the winter. I might add... Um, it's unlikely to cause any damage to a concrete driveway if it's a young fig tree for the next 20 to 30 years. Oh. Uh, and I think some people do get a little precious about their concrete driveways. I mean, it's, you know, unless you're planting a really big tree really close to a driveway um, and its trunk actually starts to lift um, and push the concrete, uh, the roots of something growing under a driveway are not necessarily going to cause any issues. Right. Uh, so... I don't know. Uh, I would love to see the tree in situ to see whether I thought it was, in fact, um, well, it's, an issue. It's only, th- it's only three foot high yeah. at the moment, mm. and it was just a twig that I put in a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly um, three feet high, it's not going to cause any problems. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, even a fig tree at 10 or 15 feet tall is unlikely to be causing any problems. Oh, great. That's and it probably great. depends on how close it is to the driveway, too. Mm. You know, if you, okay, how yeah. far away from the driveway? About a foot. Yeah, so it's reasonably close. So, uh, yes, in time it could cause issues, but it it sounds selfish, but it's about whether it's going to cause any issues in the given span that you and your neighbour have. Yeah, well, not very long, hopefully. (laughs) I hope they're not listening, Lee. No, me, me. Oh, you. I thought you were hoping the, hoping the demise of your neighbours. <laughs> we are the same age. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's also suckering along where the roots are going. I can see all these suckers coming yeah, up. Yeah, well, figs will often do that. Yeah, you'll often get suckers come up. It's a good way to produce another fig. Oh, okay. Mm. So I don't have to worry about them. Not particularly, and not unless you want to remove them because it's growing too far. Right. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank. Thanks for calling, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll... oops, Oops. You just cut off, Mum. I just cut off, Mum. Naughty. Oh, naughty, you'll naughty. regret that. Oh, um. Oh, let's go to Anne in Whittlesea. Anne, you'll have to be quick, quiz. We don't have much time, unfortunately. All right, I will. I will be. Thank you for taking the call. I've got several uh, hop bushes, semi trees really i really enjoy their trunks but i was wondering what i some suggestions like woodlandy sort of plants to plant under them 
Okay. Um, so do they get much sunshine where they are? are they not, in a, a, not a lot. Not a lot? No. Okay. There, there's a plant called, um, Veroni- one of the Veronicas called um, Perfoliata. It's got greyishy foliage and blue flowers. And uh, that that could be useful there, but I think it looks as though we're going to have to be cut off. But oh. um, but homeranthus is another thing to look at. Homer- sorry, homeranthus. Oh yes, okay. Um, things like that. Okay, well, thanks, Anne. Sorry, but we have to go now. So um, I just need to wrap up everything. Thank you to Vicky and Anne for womaning the phones. Thanks to Stephen, Gwen, and Roger for the lovely chat, and thanks to you, the listeners for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. Until the same time next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.